this afternoon we're sitting down with the staff at the Kansas City Museum here in the billiards room for this week's podcast and we're going to talk a little bit about staff diversity and growing that staff amid uh, in a, in a post-pandemic world so why don't each of you starting with Anna Marie you and we can go around the room and tell us a little bit about your background and how you came here to the Kansas City Museum. Sure. Um, so I have been in the museum field for 25 years. And I have a master's degree in museum education, which I got, I think, in 2003. Um, and that's an important fact to note is the time frame that I got it in. I went to a, uh, I got my master's from a university that really focused in uh, community engagement, museums and community engagement. I was particularly interested in museums as a catalyst for social change and my master's thesis was in how to engage uh, youth and families in public programming, in particular through hip hop culture. I was so what through hip hop culture. So I you didn't know this? No. Yeah. So I I did a case study on an exhibit that was done at Yerba Buena Center for the Arts called Hip Hop Nation, and really looked at how museums could engage youth in performing arts, really. Performing arts and pop culture, how museums can, can be relevant um, in, in that way. I'll give you my master's thesis to read at some point. How thick is it? I it's mean, is pretty it, thick. Like, it's pretty thick. Like Thornback and Barnhart dictionary <laughs> thick? It's or dictionary thick. Good housekeeping <laughs> yeah, thick. it's or... dictionary thick. <laughs> um, but I'm saying 2002, 2003 because, I mean, how many, that was 20 years ago, and we're still in the museum field talking about how to effectively engage youth, how to be responsive and relevant, how to have a diverse museum field, staff members, board members, you know, volunteers. So I came at it at a time, um, I, I got my master's in the Bay Area in Berkeley, California. That was very, um, very, uh, I would say, kind of leading conversations in museums and, and community and inclusion. So, so I came into the field at, at that time, which I think was an important time for the museum field. I grew up going to museums, but I didn't really know um, how multifaceted museums were uh, until I worked at a museum, and I worked at Chicago Children's Museum was my first uh, museum job. My bachelor's degree is in English literature. Oh my god. Having <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean a bachelor's in English lit and a minor in journalism. That's... Yeah. And I thought I was going to teach, and then I got a job at Chicago Children's Museum 
in, in fundraising and I absolutely fell in love with it. So Glenn, I want to come back to something that you that you talked about a little bit later, but sure. Glenn, I want to... Yeah, so um, I just recently gave a, a talk uh, uh, at the National Docent Symposium uh, that was here in Kansas City. And uh, it was, uh, I was referring to myself as the accidental docent. I never anticipated being, if, if you remember that movie, The Accidental Tourist. It's kind right. of, yeah, yeah, so anyway, anyway. Yeah, I, uh, I was doing poetry here in the city, just, you know, enjoying hosting a poetry reading that was pretty popular at the time just because it's something that I enjoyed doing. When the American Jazz Museum opened in 1997, uh, that was the first time I got paid to perform a poem. I started doing workshops there, got hired in the education department, was there for 10 years, served as a poet in residence, uh, then went to the Black Archives, I was there for four years, and just really found that there was this kind of natural space uh, for me to still live my life as a poet. In fact, it was encouraged in most of the institutions I was in, along with doing whatever work I was doing at that particular institution, which was typically education and public programming. So I left there, went to Bruce R. Watkins, and actually became the director there uh, behind uh, Chalubu, who you'll hear from in, in a moment. And, uh, you know, really enjoyed um, the community interaction, but there were certain things that I felt were just really uh, difficult in terms of the overall politics of that situation. And But as I was an employee at uh, Bruce R. Watkins and working with Chaluba, Anna Marie was also in the picture. In fact, I met Anna Marie while I was still at the Black Archives because the Parks Department owns the building that the mm -hmm. Black Archives is in. And so we began to interact and, and really hit it off very quickly. And uh, when she let me know that there was a position available here, um, I thought about it for about two minutes and <laughs> decided it would be a good decision to, to work here. And so I've been here for about a year and I've enjoyed every minute of it. Chaluba. Yeah, so um, a non-traditional path to the Kansas City Museum, I, I think it traces its roots back to 2006, one of the first jobs I got in college was to serve as a student building manager at the old University Center, which is now the Student Success Center. And in that job is where I got trained on how to operate equipment tied to HVAC, audiovisual equipment, and to supervise a bunch of other students who would do some of the janitorial work and the event setup work. So that interest in working in a public facility starts from my college days. And where was college was? University of Missouri, Kansas City, okay. U of KC, here in Kansas City. And so did that for a number of years and then went away um, into the nonprofit sector to work for the Health Forward Foundation, uh, where I did uh, evaluations. I would assess, under the guidance of the evaluations director, I would assess how effective the dollars that the healthcare, Health Forward Foundation was giving the community, what kind of impact they were making out there in the community. And so that interest in surveys, and doing research stems from there. Did that for about two years and then went back to pursue a master's degree um, in public administration. And that's kind of what opened the door and the interest into government and the public sector. And right when I finished that um, master's degree was around the time I went back into building services and then an opportunity presented itself at the Bruce R. Watkins Cultural Heritage Center 
through the Parks Department in the city of Kansas City. So it was lining up my personal interest and background in building services with my new Master's in Public Administration with this position at the Cultural Heritage Center. Uh, did that for a couple of years. I was fortunate to serve in that position around the time where there was several small upgrade projects that I was fortunate to oversee. And we remodeled the uh, kitchen um, in that space. We repaved the entire parking lot. We repainted the building. And so being involved, working with the state, working with the city to ensure uh, that this building at the time, which was about 30 years old, got the necessary upgrades, again, was quite uh, intriguing and interesting for me, which kind of led me to the Kansas City Museum, because right around that time, Anna Marie and the leadership team here at the museum were gearing up to renovate uh, Corinthian Hall. And so, again, that work at the Bruce R. Watkins Center just lined perfectly with this opportunity here. And uh, here I am, and I think I'm in the right spot. I really enjoy what I do. I do everything with a smile. Half the time when you're driving around the neighborhood, you see me out there doing something. And so, uh, this is home, and uh, again, a non-traditional path to a museum, but uh, thoroughly enjoying it. Cool. Paul, what about you? I think I'm also a non-traditional path uh, in the museum field, just to echo what Adam said. So back in 02, I was just starting my undergrad degree at the University of Texas, Austin, as a social worker. Uh, so that was my background, and I did the social work field, and kind of it mirrors what the museum is doing now. How do you create social change? How do you work with neighbors, create that change? I knew for undergrad, with a bachelor's in social work, you wouldn't do much, so I was encouraged to do, get my master's in social work. So I went to KU to get my master's in social work. In social work, there's two tracks. There's the clinical track, where people do that for therapy, counseling, group therapy for that as well. But also the administrative track. So that's more of regret writing, fundraising, logic models, working for a nonprofit. I always knew I wouldn't do the admin track, but did my homework and planned. And after graduation, you were told you have a better chance of getting a job if you do the clinical track because there's more funding for direct services versus administrative. I was like, okay, so I'll do the clinical track, but I was allowed to do my electives in the administrative track. So grant writing, fundraising. So kind of mm -hmm. did both. It was a special dean approval that I had to go and submit my application and proposal. So I was approved and then I did my internship at the Medi Rhodes Center and I was there for seven years uh, before I came on board. To As an intern? Uh, well I entered for a year <laughs> and then I got hired on to do a bilingual <laughs> services uh, but also I was allowed to do some administrative tracks so kind of doing both. The last two years I was the community organizer for SCARE Renaissance Neighborhood Association. Mm -hmm. So working with the leadership here Having our neighborhood meetings at the museum, at the Marie had come on board just a year after that. I think she saw my work that I was doing out in the community, and sure enough, I knew there was about to be a major renovation with this museum, and applied and got the position. Uh, ironically, I learned that there is a book called The Social Work of Museums, mm. and what's the role of museums in creating social impact change, working with the community, and having that, that interaction with, with, with residents. So very aligned to the social field mindset, but now applying those skills in a museum setting. Four, four different people, four very, very different tracks to the same room on the same day right here. Mm -hmm. I think that's, that, that's a testament to, to diversity in and of itself. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just kind of amazed. And what you said about community engagement, your, your youth engagement, it's something that 
just coming back from the Missouri Press Association convention mm-hmm. down at the lake, that's one of the top topics in, in journalism right now is how do you get young journalists involved in that field? How do you engage them and keep them in the field? Because it's a lot like teaching. You know, the teachers are bailing, journalists are bailing. Mm-hmm. And so it's, I think it's a shared kind of, kind of passion is keeping people engaged and especially keeping the youth engaged. Right. So to that end, you guys, just the four of you and the rest of your staff, which is not many, you do so much on a day-to-day basis. And when the events come along, it's like all the hands on deck for like for the, the exhibit, the Cuban exhibit. You know, everybody was here for that. And, mm-hmm. and the turnout was great. Um, what steps are you taking in growing your staff? And what challenges have you met in, in trying to do that? Sure, um, that's a great question. I think, let me share some interesting stats um, for the listeners of the podcast. As things stand right now, we have seven full-time staff members and five part-timers. So it's staff of 12. Of those 12, a fourth of them live here in the, in the historic Northeast area. Of those 12, we have folks who are from the baby boomer generation all the way to the older millennial generation. And so when you talk about- You didn't even say baby boomers. You didn't get the yeah, well, I, I skipped a skip few there between. But when you think about some of the challenges and what we're trying to do to grow our staff and, and, and look at what the staff makeup will be going forward, one of the things that myself and the executive director talk about is how do we um, get more youth involved? The fact that I said older millennial was deliberate. How are we getting folks who are Gen Z, part of the Gen Z generation? How, what are the ways that we can do some outreach? What ways could we uh, bring those uh, youth or younger people onto the staff? Is that through internships? Is that through a work uh, a development plan? These are all the conversations we go back and forth on. But what I, the point I'm trying to get at is what I think is really, really um, uh, exceptional about the staff here is not only the diversity in age, uh, it's the diversity in thought, diversity in region where people come from. But in addition to that, we also have two of our staff members who weren't even born in the United States. And so we're very deliberate when we look at the makeup of our staff when it's time to open up new positions, be it part-time or full-time. We're not only looking for folks who are experienced, we're trying to make sure that we are filling those gaps wherever we, we can, whenever it's reasonable. And so um, the next phase, uh, the next challenge for all of us is how do we ensure that younger people are representing the staff? I am one of those older millennials, but there's a difference between older millennials and Gen Z. It's there because I deal with younger folk and they tell me all kinds of things that are happening around the city and I'm like, what? I'm clueless. And so I'm having this challenge. Imagine, imagine my friends who are from another generation. So, so you're talking, now, now you're talking about the office at the Northeast News because I'm all the time, I'll walk in and out from the mouth pops a reference from, you know, the John Wayne movie McClintock and it, you're moved, nobody moves, the boy is getting, you know, this right. kind of thing and everybody's just looking like, at me, what, what is he talking about? about? Yeah. And just different frames of reference. Mm-hmm. And yeah. you bring the so you, you totally get I, where I'm going that. It, it, You have to be strategic, you got to think about the pipeline, who's coming in next. And so those are conversations we're having on a daily basis. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think what I'm really excited about for the future of the Kansas City Museum is these conversations that we'll be having um, this fall because we're doing a strategic 
and business plan refresh from our plan that we did in 2017. I'm excited about conversations around generational leadership for the museum field. How do we as a museum contribute to creating the systemic change that's needed in the museum field? And I feel very strongly that that's through creating a workforce development program at the museum. I don't know what that's going to look like. I do not have experience creating a workforce development program. I just know that there is an opportunity for us to invest in youth and to help build capacities and competencies that will be very valuable as youth then look to, you know, uh, look for the credentials that they need. So those who are 16 to 21, I think we can make a really big impact introducing them to the museum field for them to know that there are viable uh, career opportunities in museums and arts and culture. Because sometimes I think in my experience right now, a lot of the workforce development conversations that are happening are about getting youth into for-profit jobs and corporate jobs. And I'm a big advocate for nonprofit employment and you know employment in the creative arts. See, and that's one of the things that the trades, they, they've literally got this down. And that they go, they go to the high school level, they go to the middle school level sometimes, but they'll look for those kids that maybe, well, he's over there, you know, digging in the dirt while over, everybody's over here playing dodgeball or something like that. Well, yeah. come on over here, maybe we take that kid to that theme park with little steam shovels and the bulldozers and things like that. Maybe let him find his niche. And I think maybe that's, you don't see that in you don't see the museum industry in those in that world right and it needs to be in order for just like young journalists yes. uh, so many high schools are cutting their journalism program Terman high school being one of them and you don't see young kids coming up into the field and that that's what needs to happen there needs to be more drill down and that paul i think you were going to say something to yeah just like when i read several years ago the spencer art museum at ku had a panel discussion on non-traditional degrees in museum studies mm. and i was part of that panel discussion say that i'm from a social work background here you are and as a museum director telling that journey and it was really interesting at the end i don't remember her name but she came up to me she said thank you i'm like oh you're most welcome I was like now i see myself being in your director position mm. because she was hispanic lennox Spanish-speaking individual, so having that skin color for her made it seem like, oh, that's an option for me. Mm. Even though I'm not going to the museum to field study, mm -hmm. there's other options where a non-museum degree can still take you to this well, position. Well, that's a very important point. How do you reach, I mean, we're, we're in a very diverse and urban neighborhood. How do you reach those, those, those kids, uh, POCs? But how can you reach those those Spanish-speaking kids and those minority kids and get them into this field? Well, I think what Paul was alluding to is if I see someone who looks like me, I'm more inclined to, to be able to envision myself being in that role. So, you know, um, this National Docent Symposium that I was telling you about, 
Um, you know, the conversation in the museum space, you know, post-murder of George Floyd is about inclusivity and how do we be more welcoming and how do we create a sense of belonging and how do we, you know, pursue social, social justice. But at that, nearly 400 people attended that symposium. There were three people of color and only one black male. And he waited to talk to me and was just so excited that he just saw somebody that looked like him uh, in that space. But having said that, um, I think what happened prior to my coming here was that um, the right people were at the table. There was representation at the table from the beginning. So it's kind of in the DNA of the museum. And so, you know, I just did a class visit earlier this week, you know, um, we had an opportunity to work with Kansas City Girls Prep Academy um, and uh, got input from uh, six young ladies about the Jewel House uh, uh, installation that we're working on, this beautiful art space that's going to really be celebrating womanhood. And we had these young ladies who we took their ideas very seriously, you know. And so um, with the workforce development piece, if we're reaching out to the community and this is a diverse community and there's a diverse group of people reaching out to the community. Um, I think that that's, that's part of the battle. Was that the day that you were working with those young ladies? Yes. And you engaged, there was one person that was so engaged, she she wrote a poem and then yeah. recited it. Right, right, exactly. That yeah. day. And I thought yeah. that's, for, for her to, you know, to conquer all of those fears, mm -hmm. and I'm going to get up and I'm going to perform yeah. here in front of God and everybody. <laughs> yeah. And she did. And, and she, she did. did a, she did yeah. a fantastic job. Yeah, she did. So, yeah, it's moments like that. And then, you know, one of the things that, that I would like to do is, you know, have to get my sea legs and start building more relationships with, you know, schools in the, in the vicinity. But... Uh, I would love to have a youth advisory board, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and to really get input from young people about what they would like to see happen at the museum, and they can kind of also be ambassadors for us, because I've found that in my youth engagement process, if I have youth with me, that, you know, like, if I say something's cool, that doesn't resonate. <laughs> no, no. But if a 15-year-old I have with me says something's cool, then that's a different kind of way to, to reach for reach the young people. It's time to take a break to thank our sponsors. Shemekas Online Market in Delhi, offering catering and nationwide shipping at shemekasonline.com. Find their new deli at 16th and Swift in North Kansas City. Shemekas, where customers become friends and friends become family. From classics to campers, hot rods to hoopties, Seaberg Muffler, your exhaust headquarters since 1974. Armor Road in Burlington in North Kansas City, Missouri. And now back to the newscast. Well, you, and you talked a little bit about that ambassadorship, mm -hmm. and I know that Anna you and I have talked a little mm -hmm. bit about developing a, a volunteer corps for the museum. Mm -hmm. How does that how does that factor in in the development of that volunteer corps of of youth, if you will, or even if it's not youth? How does that how does that fit? How does that work? Well, we would have to see. <laughs> you know what I mean? We haven't implemented it yet, but I just think that that that's the start. Like trying to find a dedicated group of young people who um, are interested and invested in the museum. And I just think it, it kind of, uh, it snowballs, right? You know, but, but you know, it's gonna take a second to get that core group together, but, but we will. And it takes time to build trust. Mm -hmm. And we need to take the time that's necessary to build trust and to change the overall culture of the museum field, which has 
since its inception been very exclusive and very um, elitist. And, and, and we still see, I mean, we, we do still see this somewhat today and, and not just, you know, in, in many ways that if you, if you haven't worked in the museum field, you might not know. Mm-hmm. I remember, I won't name the institution, but I remember working for an institution. I got hired to work in uh, corporate fundraising. And within two weeks of being there, uh, one of my supervisors came up to me and said, why, why do you, why do you uh, engage with the security guards? And I said, excuse me? Well, you know, we don't, we don't, we don't talk to the security guards here at the museum. You know, I, we, there just shouldn't be any chit-chatting. <laughs> socializing. <laughs> and um, they were very serious about that. And I said, well, you're going to have to, I don't know, write me up or whatever you need to do because that's not going to stop. Right. I'm not going to be in a position where I cannot talk to my coworkers at every level of this institution. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that's deeply, the hierarchy in our field is deeply ingrained and, and... at the leadership level, that needs to change. And we can all sit around and go to conference after symposium, after workshop, and talk about our DEI plans. But if your staff and your board don't reflect, and your volunteer court does, do not reflect the diversity of your visitors, then yes, there's, there's, there's going to be a, an issue. And, and also, if you're not able to have a starting hourly rate that allows for people to want to be interested in working for your institution, that's a problem. I mean, our budget is what, the $2.3 million annually? Mm-hmm. Super duper small, right? And if we can have a starting hourly rate of $15 an hour mm-hmm. for a position, I think an institution that has upwards of, you know, a budget of 25 million can can do that. But but you know, museums, some of the larger institutions have really fallen behind and there's such a discrepancy between what the president and CEO makes, right? Mm-hmm. And what the front, you know, visitor experience staff and the janitorial staff and the security guards make. And so it's time for those things to change, but those can't change unless the leaders of those organizations step up and say, you know what, this is not equitable. I'm sorry, I was just, kept saying things. Yeah. You look excited. Glenn's going to say something. I'm excited. Plus, I'm old. If I don't get it out, I'll forget. You want to end right now? That's it. But, but uh, you know, to Anna Marie's point, I've heard Chaluba say on numerous occasions, you know, like, I could be gone for a week and, you know, things would happen, but nobody necessarily missed me. But if, you know, Kalisha, who's on our janitorial staff, is gone for a couple of days, it's a problem, right? Mm-hmm. And so everybody is important. You know what I mean? Everybody has value. And so that's one of the things that I learned very early on but there is that internal hierarchy. Yes. The other thing that kind of triggered a thought is that museums have historically been elitist. 
very, you know, many of them still are. A lot of the, the conversation is just that. We'll have this workshop, we'll have this symposium, we'll call it DEI, whatever, but it's very performative. But the irony is nobody trusts the government anymore. Nobody trusts the healthcare system anymore. Nobody trusts religion anymore. You know who people do trust? Museums. Mm -hmm. And so... In Why is that? Why is that? Well, I think because there is the perception, or it used to be, that's even being challenged now, that we're kind of like uh, journalism used to be, <laughs> just presenting the facts, right? Here's the artifacts, here's the, this is where it came from, you know, oftentimes, you know, there's science museums and natural history museums, and so all that's rooted in, you know, it's fact-based and, ev you know, evidence to support, whereas, um, you know, but inside we know that historically there's always been some kind of slant. Uh, there's always been some kind of, you know, and even in terms of the language, like, you know, if it, if it comes from Africa or if it comes from Mexico, it's primitive art, you know, those kinds of things. And so some of those things have changed, but I guess what I'm trying to get at is the public perception is still that museums can be trusted. And I feel like internally we have to challenge each other because we're one of the places where we haven't been exposed as much as other institutions have been. You know what I mean? Yeah. So you did that challenge, where does that challenge lie? Internally is what I'm saying. And but how yeah. does that how does that look? How does that look? Uh, so like um, you know, just to to, to yeah, I, I've worked with I've been very fortunate. I've worked with a lot of different um, institutions here in Kansas City and um, you know when the Nelson got involved in all of this controversy because you know the protests were coming through the plaza after George Floyd got murdered and the police were staging on the property I'm not trying to be an apologist for the Nelson I think it was just one of those things that happened but it turned out to be really bad optics and so in the process of them trying to figure out how to you know uh, kind of let the community know that, that we want to be a place of belonging. They decided to do this podcast that they asked me to host. And, you know, from the very beginning, I just let them know that I was not interested in being a PR guy for the Nelson. I don't want to be tokenized. Um, if we're going to interview people, this needs to be centered around what the community has to say and not a bunch of talking heads from the Nelson. And I have that conversation with my colleagues, um, I, I try to communicate those thoughts through poetry. And so I think that those of us who are in the field have to create accountability internally. It just starts here for like at the museum when we talk like, are we really living up to what we say we do? You know what I mean? And we interrogate ourselves to make sure, you know, because there's not necessarily a blueprint. We're all kind of trying to figure it out. But I think um, you know, we, we have taken on the awesome responsibility of trying to lead by example. Um, and I think that um, by doing that, hopefully other, other institutions uh, will follow suit. And then we're also wanting to engage with institutions who are doing the work so that we can learn from them as well. So like the work we're doing with the uh, International Institute for Restorative Practices, really trying to make sure that we are educating ourselves and girding ourselves up for the work we, we want to do. And another way, if I can add how we challenged ourselves, most recently we posted a part-time position to the front desk, uh, the official position title, Visitor Experience Associate. Uh, 
uh, we put out that posting for a number of weeks and we had close to about seven people complete the application per the requirements that we listed uh, on, on the website and all these other media channels that we pushed that posting on. Internally, and myself and Paul and another colleague were charged with you know getting this person hired and selected and so on and so forth. In the past, what I would have done is I would have asked the selection committee to pick their top three candidates and interview those three. This time, the decision that we decided to make was we're going to interview everyone who meets the basic requirements that is completing the application. And by doing that, uh, Mike and Abby, we had a very diverse pool. Age, Age yep. gender, race, education background. So that, that's a clear example of how we challenged ourselves. Because by interviewing everybody, that's a time issue, right? And there's only so that's, many hours in the day. Right. And so to open up ourselves, to give ourselves the opportunity to talk to everybody and give everybody a fair shot uh, was one of the ways we're trying to challenge ourselves and move in a, in a new direction. And in addition to that, after we concluded the interviews and selected the person who will start at the museum next week, we took it upon ourselves to, when we sent our, I guess you call them rejection notices, we opened up the opportunity for these individuals to stay engaged with us. And next time there's an opening, we will be sure to reach out to those individuals who didn't make the cut and give them another opportunity to come back. So we're not just closing the door. And that's how you build trust. And in fact, uh, one or two of the applicants who were not successful have actually called me personally and want to have a follow-up conversation on how they can improve going forward. So again, that's more pressure mm -hmm. on me because now I have to play back the tapes of the interview process, but I also have to be honest and hopefully from that second conversation, we will be able not only to guide them back to this museum, but maybe to another uh, cultural institution or museum. So it's more internal work, it's small steps, um, it's changing some of your, your internal policies and procedures, and, and, and I think that in the long term, that will pay off not only for ourselves, but for the community at large. That's, that's interesting. I've never had an employer call me back and, and say, it, or, you know, when I got a rejection notice, it was usually the postcard. Yep. Thank you for your interest in dot, dot, dot. We'll keep your resume on file, and it was usually into the circular file and thanks, see you, bye. So it's and that's how we've always done it. And this time, we're, if we're you know, going to you know, not only talk the talk, but walk the walk, mm -hmm. you know, part of our restorative practices uh, philosophy is, is trying to make communities and individuals whole. And we've all been there when we've all mm -hmm. been rejected mm -hmm. and what that's like, where you just received the postcard. And so, not, not, turning, me, not me, not me, but <laughs> the rest of us. <laughs> or no, or no callback. Or no callback. And so yeah. internally, to call people back, give them an opportunity to come back and have a further conversation. Is it more work? Yes. May it be tedious? Yes. But it's, it's the right thing to do. And it builds trust. And it's not a PR stunt. Because we're concerned about it. Um, everyone who is making an attempt to engage with this institution. And, uh, but, but, another, but, another layer to add to that. My public program brain switched on, and I want to invite some of those candidates to do a public program here. Mm -hmm. There's one individual who was younger than myself, I believe, and he was very knowledgeable on Casey Facts history. So my brain's like reaching out to that individual, pay them for their time to do a public program mm -hmm. on the theater. So that's kind of another layer of, of mm -hmm. these candidates that I kind of want to reach out to back. Not just for employment, but yeah. for do a, do a public program. So. We've talked a lot about 
diversification in board and the home of the whole story. Uh, I'm just going to throw this out there. The Kansas, as part of your mission statement, Kansas City Museum aims to be the home of the whole story where perspectives and experiences from individuals and communities that are often underrepresented and overlooked are acknowledged, honored, and elevated. How does that translate to your staff and your board? Because I think so many times we see, and you talked, we've all talked a little bit about that, and it, if I'm rehashing, let me know. But, you know, you see the board of directors and it in no way represents the community or the audience that they want to serve. So how do you, how do you make that change and what, I guess, what boots on the ground do you need in order to go in that direction? Well, I, I think that first and foremost, you have to, you have to set that intention and set that value and invest the time. And you also have to um, be open to um, acknowledging your own journey and all of it as an individual. I mean, we have made all kinds of mistakes along the way as we've tried to reopen this museum. Um, and it's been it's been really challenging and it's been filled with joy and excitement but we're each human beings in our own process of you know development working towards a very aspirational mission and vision and you also have to give yourself room to um, to explore and discover and say, I don't know, I need to learn more, I need to do better. I mean, that really is, honestly, that is a very big part of it for me. I have been so filled with pride to be a part of this project, I think going on nine years, um, because I get to work with these folks every day. I get to work on it with a very incredible board that is supportive, that's focused on leadership and policy and governance. And I think that's made me better as a museum professional. I think it's made me a better mom and a better wife and a better friend going through all of this. Um, but it, you know, make no mistake, the work that we're doing is not easy. And um, that's a lot to take on. I mean, each of us work pretty much seven days a week, well over 40 hours a week, and we have four years. But we also do it because we love what we do. There's a passion. We, we, love, sure. we understand the power of museums as cultural and educational institutions and you all can speak to this I'm gonna just say I mean I love Kansas City I moved back to Kansas City after being away for two over two decades I came back here to make a difference in my community I thought that I might be able to because I had advanced enough in my professional career we uprooted our family and moved back here and I think 
that is an important point, and I'm interested to see what you all say, but that's also at the core of it, that we, we have, each of us, have intentionally decided to work for this institution and this mission and in this city. And then also, you know, there's a part of it for me because I came in as an executive director to rebuild. And I have been in situations before where I came in at a time where there was trauma at the institution that needed to be healed. You know, I've come in, I've had jobs before where there's been a need for transition management or change management. So I also like coming into that situation and rebuilding. Um, but when you're the executive director that's coming in for that particular purpose, you also know how much time and investment and sacrifice it's going to take to get the institution from, you know, zero to 100. So, you know, I also kind of, I feel like I'm in, a, in an interesting position, also given where I am, you know, I'm almost 50, um, where I am in my career, I've learned not to hold on, you know. I did not make a commitment to come in and run this museum for 25 and 30 years until I'm apathetic and somebody keeps saying, God, when is she going to leave this institution, <laughs> you know? I mean, my generation in the museum field has, I think, been one where you come in and you take it on and you also know that when you take that position as an executive director, you need to start planning for the next executive director. I mean, there is a commitment from the very beginning of a, of a longer-term succession plan. I'm going to get it to this point, and I'm going to help build a team that's going to take it even farther than, than I could have. But I feel like that's also the spirit of our staff and our board. Everybody is here for a particular pur purpose, wanting to move this organization forward. D does that resonate well, with you I, all? I echo that completely, Anna Marie. You and I had this conversation last week. Mike and Abby, the first director this museum had back in the 40s, John Ripley Forbes, moves from the state of Massachusetts to Missouri. And for the first few years was a volunteer volunteer this time. And the core staff were individuals that he recruited through the Works Administration Program, mm -hmm. the PA. And so that spirit of service, volunteerism, is at the core of this museum. And you could draw the line between Mr. Forbes and Ms. Tutera, that this is a service first uh, type of position and career and role for all of us, not just the executive director. And so we, as the leaders of this museum in today's world have a responsibility to ensure that we carry on that legacy that's been inbuilt and embedded um, in this museum. And so when we look at future staff, when we look at who we're trying to bring on as partners, vendors and the like, as much as possible, it's difficult, but we try and ensure that that spirit also spills through into everyone that we come in contact with. And so I completely echo uh, what you said. It's service first, it's nice that we get paid for it. That's always helpful. <laughs> Uh, but that spirit of service is at the core of what we do. I just remember uh, moving back to Kansas City from, from D.C. I'd always felt like Kansas City wasn't culturally rich enough 
uh, that I want to live somewhere else. I was always kind of drawn to the East Coast and had an opportunity to live there for four years. And I came back and I was talking to a friend about how much I missed, missed the poetry scene and spoken word and, you know, how vibrant D.C. was. Now, at the same time, there was a lot of conversation about the revitalization efforts in the 18th and Vine era, um, area. And uh, so one day we're just kind of, uh, you know, chewing the fat and I'm, you know, waxing on about how I miss D.C. And my friend said, man, why don't you do something here? And it's like, I promise you, like a light bulb came on and I said, I can contribute something. I can help Kansas City to be the type of city that I would like to live in. So that was the first thing. Then I stumble into the Jazz Museum and get hired in the education department. And I find out I can have even greater impact, you know, with the support of this institution and, and how we engage the community. And so um, when, when that happens, you do start to fall in love with the city. And then when you learn this incredible history, like Kansas City is so slept on and flown over, I think the cat's getting out of the bag. Now, I mixed a whole lot of metaphors. In there, but history and there's so much art and culture here that that is like these little pockets and these little you know if, if you're kind of in the know which happens when you get into this space you're like oh there's so much to do mm -hmm. you know and right. so my, my view of Kansas City has changed dramatically and I do uh, want to live here for the rest of my life I want to travel mm -hmm. you know what I mean but I'll, I'll always want to have a home here what about you Paul wrap it up uh, I think uh, me said it's intentional it's intentional with the work that we're doing. Um, I think other museums might be struggling to do the work that we're doing. Um, I'm just part of an interview, kind of virtual meeting about how other museums are struggling to achieve, to be more equitable, to be more inclusive, to be more accessible. And I just said, I'm like, y'all, the museum is doing it. <laughs> here are the facts, here's the evidence, here's... So um, I'm very grateful to be part of this team. Uh, Anna Marie has been great in, in trusting us to do what we're doing and run with it. Um, so thank you, Anna Marie, for that. Of course. But um, I think as a social worker, I think this is the best impact I'm doing for our city and for our people here. To learn more about the Kansas City Museum, you can go to kansascitymuseum.org. That's kansascitymuseum.org under Proms and Events. You can sign up for our e-blast as well. Uh, coming up is our ninth annual Dia de los Muertos celebration in partnership with the Maddie Rhodes Arts Center. That's been a great event here to showcase, and I'm working with Glenn on another celebration in 2023. So stay tuned for that. And just having um, our historians and educators do programming and continue with our culinary and um, concerts and film as well. So stay tuned for more activity. And of course, the annual Fairy Princess is coming back to Corinthian Hall the week of December 8th through the 11th, and annual traditions is 1935 here in Kansas City.